I'm, I'm delighted to be here, and thank you very much. Uh, Tess and Jillian are interns here and gave me a wonderful personal tour, did a great job. And I'm particularly delighted to be at the National Portrait Gallery and in Washington, D.C., because Washington, D.C. is actually a place that, right, that occurs a lot because uh, Elizabeth and Susan called their first national women's suffrage conference in 1869 because they somehow thought that maybe if they brought the struggle to Washington, they could get the attention of the legislators. They thought that. And, <laughs> and here's just, a, here's just an, a snippet, an excerpt from my book. Um, this is a, in January of 1882. Um, now, they had their first convention in Washington in 1869. Nine. And the people, the Jackie and Liz, who I wrote in, I had to ask them to do the math between 1869 and 1882. <laughs> they tell me it's 13 years. Okay, so, so 13 years later, here's their progress. Um, they interrupted their work, uh, to, their, their work at the, to attend the National Woman Suffrage Convention in Washington. After years of intense lobbying, petitioning, and speaking, speaking um, they achieved a tiny victory. The Senate finally agreed, now remember, we're talking 13 years after meeting here every year in January for three and four days at a time, lobbying, okay, you, you got the sense. The Senate finally agreed to appoint seven senators to a select committee on woman suffrage. But even this small step roused the ire of politicians opposed to woman suffrage. Senator George Graham Vest of Missouri denounced the decision as, quote, mischief to the institutions and to society of the whole country. Senator John Tyler Morgan of Alabama predicted that the result would disband families. <laughs> Addressing the committee members, Elizabeth said that their appointment, quote, thrilled the hearts of their countrywoman and that they were, quote, grateful for even this slight recognition. Susan celebrated the achievement in her diary. Quote, if the best of worldly goods had come to me personally, I could not feel more joyous and blessed. They, each, they gave each man a copy of the history of woman's suffrage. Surely they must have thought that victory was possible in their time. Now, let's fast forward, and we're now in 1882. A few days later, in Washington, D.C., Susan presided over the 19th National Woman Suffrage Convention. Um, and on the second day of the convention came word that finally the full Senate had voted on the 16th Amendment, which read, Quote, the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by any state on account of sex. Many women observed the debate from the Senate gallery. Susan remained to preside at the convention. One senator presented, now listen to these numbers, one senator presented a pro-suffrage petition from the Women's Christian Temperance Union, an organization of 200,000 members. Another introduced an anti-suffrage document, anti-suffrage, from 200 men, including the president of Harvard. That document, the one with the president of Harvard, and the claim that granting woman suffrage would, quote, unsex our mothers, wives, and sisters, prevailed, and the amendment was defeated. 
Noting, however, that 16 of the senators had voted for the amendment, convention delegates passed a resolution, quote, that we rejoice in this evidence that our demand is forcing itself upon the attention and action of Congress, and that when a new Congress shall have assembled with new men and new ideas, we may hope to change this minority into a majority. And when was the 19th Amendment passed? 1920. The 16th became the 19th. I've had the feeling before upon signing a book contract, book contract, but with this book, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, A Friendship That Changed the World, it was particularly intense. Did I hear someone ask me what that feeling was? <laughs> yes? <laughs> What feeling, you ask? <laughs> Did you say that? What feeling, you ask, Penny? Panic. In concert with the words echoing in my brain, and what have I gotten myself into this time? Sure, I had tackled big topics before, including a history of burial, the true story of Thanksgiving, a collective biography of eight historic women with widely varying amounts of source material, and the story of Rosie the Riveter. But this book was to be a joint biography that spanned more than 90 years through the lens of a legendary friendship between two very different women that was at the center of a momentous social movement that is typically trivialized or summed up in one sentence. What's that sentence? In 1920, women were given the right to vote. Right. In May... 1851, when they met, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was 35 years old and Susan B. Anthony was 31 years old. Of course, I could have started the book at that point, but I was curious about the differences and similarities in how they grew up. That curiosity, of course, certainly ratcheted up my writerly anxieties about how to structure the telling of these separate stories, and I spent weeks working through this decision. I taped long sheets of paper on the wall and made parallel timelines from their birth to their first meeting. I used post-it notes so I could easily add or remove items as I tried to discern a structure. Then one day, and I remember that day vividly, I saw it. Four time periods that started and ended with significant periods in both their lives. With that eureka moment, I was able to organize their early years into part one with eight alternating chapters that focused on first Elizabeth, who was born in 1815, and Susan, who was born in 1820. For example, the period between 1833 and 1839, they both went from boarding school to significant events in their young adult lives. Elizabeth, in 1839, became engaged to a man her father adamantly opposed as suitable, and Susan became a teacher to help support her family after her father went bankrupt. These stories come together in part two, which opens with their meeting in May 1851 and covers the years through the Civil War, the period of what Elizabeth called the dark hour of woman's struggle appear in part three. Their final year, in which they go from Ridicule to reverence, ostracism to embrace are examined in part four. Having been immersed in the lives of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony for many years, I'm finding it hard to let them go, although my book has been out since May 10th. 
because I happened to live near the house where Elizabeth lived in New Jersey for many years and where Susan spent a great deal of time, I got in the habit while I was writing my book of regularly walking by their house, which is now privately owned, and I haven't stopped. And that's the house. Then last week, I revisited the site of the apartment building at 250 West 94th Street in New York City, where Elizabeth lived and Susan visited from 1891 until Elizabeth's death in 1902. Two years ago, the current apartment building built on that site was renamed the Stanton in honor of Elizabeth. In the lobby, there's a display of memorabilia, including a photograph of Elizabeth sitting enthroned on, oh, this is me in the lobby looking at the memorabilia. <laughs> oh, there I am. I'm looking in the lobby, and the sign says that it's about Elizabeth who lived there, and there are a series of, of photographs. And now we're going to see the photograph of her sitting enthroned in an elegant Victorian rosewood armchair, the living embodiment of her moniker, the grand old lady of America. And you can see, you note in the photograph in the, where she's sitting behind her are books. And she's also holding a book, although by this time she has cataracts on both our eyes and needs to have somebody read to her. And above her head, you can see this elegant rosewood uh, armchair has the open pierced carved floral crest. So this is a wonderful image. And you can see Elizabeth in just all her power, at least in, I see in that picture. Do you agree? Yes, forceful. And there's a wonderful um, painting of her which in the gallery. There are wonderful paintings here. Today, before my book talk, I revisited some of the key characters in my book who are represented right here in the National Portrait Gallery. As part of my research, I came to the National Portrait Gallery in 2007 so that I could study the daguerreotype of Frederick Douglass, which hangs in the hall outside the gallery uh, in which we'll be going in a minute. Um, Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth first met at a gathering in Boston in the 1840s, and he later recalled, quote, she did me the honor to sit by my side and by the logic of which she is master, successfully endeavored to convince me of the wisdom and truth of the then new gospel of woman's rights. You can imagine having Susan sit next to you at a party. <laughs> But you notice that he refers to it as the then new gospel, and this would have been in the 1840s before uh, Elizabeth moves to Seneca Falls in 1847. When I entered the gallery, which is in the American Origins section, and this is gallery E122, I was thrilled to see the bronze bust of Susan B. Anthony, which is cast after a 1982 marble bust of Susan by Adelaide Johnson, which is now in the Sewell Belmont House. Um, there's also a marble bust that Adelaide Johnson did of Elizabeth that's there. And you see behind Susan's nose, you see in the background, that's the extraordinary oil painting of Elizabeth Cady Stanton by Anna Elizabeth Klumke. 
Elizabeth posed for the portrait in 1887 while she was visiting her son Theodore and his family who lived in Paris. And by the way, there's still a whole line of descendants from Theodore Stanton um, in, in France. I am quite pleased with the results, she wrote to her son Robert, who lived in New York City. And I must say, so am I. It's a wonderful portrait. Fittingly, close to Elizabeth, Susan and Elizabeth, we're going to widen out that view, and you'll see an oil painting done by Joseph Kyle in 1842 of their mentor and close friend, Lucretia Mott. And in between Lucretia Mott, I just rediscovered tonight because I had forgotten, is Margaret Fuller. <laughs> so Margaret Fuller is, is in between them. Now, it's interesting because I took these photographs when I was here in 2007 to just immerse myself and to have them. I put, these, I put pictures all over my writing area. They hang from the ceiling. They're on posters. They're all over, posts all over, just as part of my process. And I couldn't figure out how I pulled this off. But take a look. You see Susan and you see Elizabeth. Well, there's somebody in between them, right? And here he comes. In between them is Wendell Phillips, a bust of Wendell Phillips. And Wendell Phillips is a noted reformer, abolitionist, who later, as you'll read in my book, betrayed Elizabeth and Susan in their post-Civil War advocacy for universal suffrage. But there they are. And then uh, be behind uh, Susan, you can't see that photograph, but that's Harriet Beecher Stowe. And you'll also see William Lloyd Garrison in that room in terms of key characters from my book are in that room. And then I ended my tour today, or we were up on the third floor with the new exhibit, The Struggle for Justice, where I saw this photo of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony in 1870, which is thought to be their first joint photo. So do the math. Elizabeth was born in 1815. This is taken in 1870. And yes, yeah. And yes, and no, that's fine. And then 1820. So how old are they? Who's doing the math? Right. Now, some people will say it looks like because Elizabeth was born in 1815 and Susan was born in 1820 that they were five years apart, but they're really not because Elizabeth is born in November and 26th, and Susan is born on February 15th. Um, either date could be declared a national holiday as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the truth is, I don't really ever want to let them go. Short, rotund, vivacious Elizabeth, a scintillating thinker, prolifically influential writer, fearless orator, and the married mother of seven children, and tall, angular, austere, Susan, an indefatigable doer, an organizer and planner extraordinaire, principled pragmatist, an unmarried former teacher. Why? Because they're great company. Witty, bold, brilliant, irreverent, indomitable, invigorating, empowering, and inspiring. But more importantly, Elizabeth and Susan are an invaluable reference point for me, and I hope for readers of all ages, to reflect on friendship, and activism, and social justice, and strategies, and perseverance, and the rights of women everywhere in the world. Shortly before Elizabeth's death in 1902, Susan wrote in a letter to her, it's been 51 years since we first met, 
and we have been busy through every one of them, stirring up the world to recognize the rights of women. Today, there is still a lot of stirring to do. And to do it, there is much that we can learn from the legacy of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and their friendship that changed the world. And what I'd like to do now is, since I was talking about writerly decisions, one of the things that I realized in writing this book is that there are whole generations of people who either miss the women's movement <laughs> and women's studies and women's history or never got it in the first place, um, who don't have the context for what the struggle was about. And in my reading, I became aware that the way that issue is typically handled, how to contextualize it, is there's usually like a, 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 a sentence or a series of sentences that say women didn't have the right to. Do, do you know that? Yes, like yeah, women yeah. did. And, you know, people glaze over. They either, huh? Yeah, and it's, but, but also that it's, it's just kind of all compressed. And it's just all compressed. And it's sort of the kind of thing that it, there's nothing emotionally or cognitively engaging. So I thought about this for a long, 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 long time <laughs> about how to deal with this. And then it came to me. And I had recently reread one of my other famous uh, favorite people's, of course, Rachel Carson. And I'd recently... I've actually been teaching a part of um, Silent Spring because Rachel Carson is a wonderful nonfiction writer, and she wrote a prologue. Does anybody remember that uh, in, in her book, which I had totally forgotten. It was just that I was looking at Rachel Carson as you know, a, a wonderful writer, and she, wrote, she thought a lot about how she wrote, and she wrote about how she wrote. And I'm interested in the writing process and the decision-making process. So I said, oh, a prologue. A prologue, imagine a time. Imagine a time in America when girls get much less education than boys do, when girls' activities, especially for middle and upper class girls, are limited to ladylike endeavors, when girls and women are considered naturally weaker and inferior to boys and men, when it's considered shocking, outrageous, scandalous for a woman to give a speech in public, especially to audiences of both men and women, when women who dare to speak in public are ridiculed, reviled, threatened, even attacked, when women, especially middle and upper class women, are expected to confine their activities to a separate sphere or their homes or to exhibit the virtues of religious piety, sexual purity, wifely submission, and motherly domesticity, and to always be escorted outside their home by a man. When ministers, powerful shapers of cultural norms and public opinion, vigorously promote women's roles based on biblical verses such as, wives, submit yourself unto your own husband as unto the Lord, and, but I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. When a married woman does not have the legal right to own property, enter into contracts, sign legal documents or control what happens to her wages or her children, when women who do not get married or have to earn money 
have very few job opportunities and are always paid less than a man who does the same job? When the United States government successfully pressures the Cherokee Indians to eliminate women's traditional power in making tribal decisions, when almost a million African women are held in chattel slavery, when women are not allowed to vote. Once upon a time in America, all the conditions you have just been imagining really existed. Why? They evolved from religious beliefs, entrenched customs, and legal traditions that earlier settlers brought with them to America. Throughout American history, countless numbers of women and men have fought to change these conditions. To write all their names, we would need both sides and the top of the Great Wall of China. And as always the case, certain names would stand out. In particular, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who are remembered for their fierce, relentless, groundbreaking leadership and for their powerful friendship in the fight for women's rights. And now let me read the part of the author's note, and then we'll stop for questions. Author's note. This is a true story, a war story. At least that is how Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony described their long fight against beliefs, customs, and laws that oppressed and disenfranchised women. They wrote and spoke about ammunition and bullets to fire against the enemy and to engage in combat with tyrants. They met in councils of war and organized raw recruits and set squadrons in the field to seize the fort. They were called Napoleon and General. <laughs> and without shedding any blood, they kept each other on the warpath at the point of a bayonet and led a revolution that transformed the lives of women. Elizabeth and Susan came of age when the American Revolution was a recent event, one in which their grandfathers had thought, fought. That perhaps could explain their use of war language. More likely, I think, it reflects their acute awareness of the scope of their unprecedented undertaking. Night after night, by the light of an old-fashioned fireplace, Elizabeth once wrote, we plotted and planned the coming agitation, how, when, and where each entering wedge could be driven by which women might be recognized and her rights secured. Such battles were fought over and over again. Okay. Questions? Yes? I hope the book talks about how they resolved conflicts between themselves and uh, the power issues that it sounds like must have occurred. Well, the two of them are just well, according to them, and remember, the only evidence yes. that I had, and none of their, uh, I found no evidence among the many, many comments and descriptions by their friends about this issue. But Elizabeth and Susan themselves said that we resolved all our differences in private. And once they were convinced that they were right through this process that they went through, and remember, both of them are rooted in the law. They're rooted in history. You know, to read their speeches and to read, you know, they, they, Elizabeth you know, grew up with her father, the lawyer, and her, you know, husband. She was immersed in the law and in politics. And so their, 
their positions were reasoned positions. They were reasoned in the law. They were reasoned in documents like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. And so through this process, they would then arrive at a decision that they would maintain a steadfast allegiance to in public. The, the one decision that, and it's a critical decision, and it's interesting because it's a decision that then comes again to the women who are fighting for, the, for suffrage around the time of World War II, is the decision about whether to, spend the fight for, to suspend the fight for women's rights uh, with the Civil War. And the male abolitionists asked Elizabeth and Susan to suspend the fight and focus on the war. And uh, Elizabeth agreed, and Susan adamantly disagreed, adamantly disagreed. She writes to one of her close friends that she is so ashamed she felt that it was a big mistake. But, but the, the abolitionists who were, who the, the radical Republicans who were in power at that time, who were made up of the abolitionists, appeared or seemed to make it seem as if they supported universal suffrage and that they would support. And Elizabeth believed that that would be their reward. And so Susan was totally isolated. Nobody would even come when she tried to call a convention. And after the war and after passage of the 14th and 15th Amendment, Elizabeth did publicly say that it was a that Susan had been right and it was a huge blunder. And the same issue again comes up between Alice Paul and Carrie Chapman Catt and the two, the National Women's Party and the National American Women's Suffrage around how to proceed during World War I. And it was interesting because many of those, the same issues, and I'm reading, I'm saying, oh, oh. And one of the things I do know is that women who, across generations, who fought for women's rights, they knew their history because they cite them. They talk about them. They reference. So they, they, they knew their history. These decisions were, were, were rooted. So that's kind of what my research led me, led me to conclude. Yes? Well, how did Alice Paul succeed when they failed? What's the, what's the difference in terms of the strategy? Well, maybe it's just new men and new ideas. Didn't they wish for that? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to answer that question because the context is so different. Um, part, of, part of, I think, the key reason is by the time we get into the early 1900s, after 1917, I mean, 1911, when Illinois um, passes presidential suffrage, and then um, 1917, when New York enfranchises its women, Politicians had to listen in a different way they had never listened before. And that's interesting. That's another fight that was refought. Do, because Susan and Elizabeth said, we're not going to support a politician of any party if they don't support women's suffrage, which again was very, Lewis, uh, uh, Lucy Stone and crew say, we're going to support the Republicans. This is another issue that also came up with Alice Paul. So it's interesting to see these decisions. And I think, really, I think a key, key thing was this the sheer force of women voters made politicians have to pay attention. And then also Wilson decided to kind of get a grip after a long time. So I think that's one of the really, really key things. Yes? Did they ever envision a different presidency? Like, is it like that if women got this, then maybe 
can be just one person higher who did they have a vision of the council? Well, Elizabeth runs for Congress in 1866, and Susan thought that Elizabeth would have easily been a president, but not I, in terms of whether they organized a more, mm -hmm. I think what you're alluding to is like a more feminist, mm -hmm. n n that wouldn't have been part of, you know, it's interesting, one of the things in writing this book is uh, in 1833 when Lucretia Mott is one of the main founders of the Philadelphia uh, Women's Anti-Suffrage Society, and th because the men have formed the American Anti-Suffrage Society, what? Slavery. Sorry. Slavery. Thank you. Slavery. Um, and the, the men say the women can have an auxiliary. Well, one of the really interesting things to read is, is that Lucretia Mott writes that at that time the women needed to have a man show them how to run their meeting. They choose James McCrummel, who's an African-American, uh, the husband of one of the African-American women who farmed the group who was a dentist. And Lucretia writes quite eloquently about the fact that these ideas weren't even in their head. And that's what the Douglas quote that I read you, the new ideas. These, these were new ideas. And so ideas that to us, we can't really lay it on that time because, and that was one of the things that was so interesting for me in writing the book. It was a, it was a, it was, um, a, a sign of a consciousness raising for me to realize that in this period of history that these ideas were so new that a woman like Lucretia Mott and others didn't know how to proceed in running a meeting. That's interesting. And to think about then what it took, because women weren't even you know, allowed to speak in public without being reviled and attacked. So that's interesting to think about just how these ideas came into being. And of course, Elizabeth was a voracious reader. She was, just had a brilliant mind and she read all these people who were writing and thinking, Mary Wollstonecraft, of course, was widely read. Um, Martha Wright, both Martha Wright, who's the youngest sister of Lucretia Mott, and Martha Wright, Coffin Wright, is a close friend of Elizabeth's and Susan, and she's also one of the five women who organized the Seneca Falls Convention. Martha and um, Lucretia are writing back and forth, and they write about the fact that they love to leave out copies of Vindication of the Rights of Women, Mary Wollstonecraft, to shock their visitors. <laughs> so, there's a great deal of humor in all of this, which I think also sustained them. Another question? Yes. Um, in your research, did you come across any information about like, their rebuttal to the doctrine of culture or how they related to John Stuart Mills and the subjugation of women? Well, they rejected all of that, and they rooted themselves, Elizabeth, they rooted themselves in, in the natural rights that all, you know, building on, because the Declaration of Sentiments that Elizabeth was the key author of, she just took Jefferson's line, all men are created equal, and the, the natural rights doctrine, she said, hey, wait a minute, this applies to women. So their rooting was that these, this was all superstition. That's what I talked about, about these you know, these, uh, these outdated, these primitive, these, you know, these ideas that, that for them, all of that was canceled out by this, that people are born. And actually, um, Susan, Susan goes on, here it is, in, um, I opened right to it. Um, so do we remember our dates? 1869, their first convention, and then we, we're going up. Now we're in 1892. This is the last convention that is held in Washington that Elizabeth will, will attend. Um, and Elizabeth, this is the convention that probably many of you know, she gave her famous speech, The Solitude of Self, 
which she also considered her masterpiece. <laughs> and so did Susan. I, I love Elizabeth for her sense of confidence, too. <laughs> so Elizabeth delivers this speech, which is actually um, um, Vivian Gorick, the contemporary American writer, actually wrote a book of her reaction to Elizabeth's, I think her book is called The Solitude of Self. This is a speech that is one of, one of the documents in American history that has gotten some visibility. And Elizabeth delivered her speech to the House and the Senate Judiciary Committees and to the convention, which was also typical as Elizabeth would write speeches and give it. So it's not like these legislatures hadn't been hearing about all of this. But here's, here's the key thing that undergirds Elizabeth in t talking about any of the laws and the attitudes. She says, quote, the point I wish plainly to bring before you on this occasion is the individuality of each human soul. Who I ask you can take, dare take on himself the rights, the duties, the responsibilities of another human soul. And, and that, that's 1892, but that's been very much the, the thinking that she's brought to dealing with all of that. And she writes about that. There's a speech that she gives uh, in 1854 to the uh, New York legislature where she talks about women from four perspectives, uh, women as women, women as wives, women as mothers, and women as widows. And, and all, all of that is the same theme that in her famous speech, Our Girls, where she comes back to that same theme, is that ultimately we, all of us, need, are responsible for, for you know, the decisions we make in our lives.